of Sassanax, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanax Files. This week, I'm discussing 510 Mercy Shall Follow Me. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanax Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcast, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons six and seven, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 510 Mercy Shall Follow Me. lovelies. It is so wonderful to be back after a fantastic season six. I hope you all enjoyed the newest season brought to you by Stars, and I hope you're not too depressed about Droughtlander. I'm trying not to let it get me down. That's why I started this podcast, is so that we had something to do to pass the time during the long, long, long waits between seasons. So I hope you'll join me for the ride. I've got three episodes left for season five and all of season six to cover. And, you know, a few special episodes with some special guests along the way. So I hope you'll tune in. And now let's get to what we all came here to discuss today. Season five, episode 10, Mercy Shall Follow Me. And holy smokes, what an episode to start back with. There are so many little nuanced things about this episode that I was like, oh, I need to talk about that. And oh, I need to talk about that. So Let's get right into it. I think that the first thing that was super noticeable about this episode for me was the Brie-Claire dynamic. We haven't really had an episode that had some really good Brie and Claire scenes. I mean, we've had scenes here and there sprinkled throughout season five, but this is the first one that we've got multiple Brie-Claire scenes in the same episode, which was kind of cool. And I really noticed, particularly in the scene on the beach, that not only are we seeing the mother-daughter bond that we all love about this show, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, I think that Sophie and Kat are phenomenal together, but we're also seeing this undercurrent start to be woven through the episode. There are tons of little themes and things going on that I'll make sure to point out along the way, but I really thought it was fascinating that they see these whales off the coast, and they're like, wow, We never saw any of that in our time. Like, whalers had pretty much hunted them almost to the edge of extinction by the end of the 19th century. So it's really interesting that we get these glimpses of this natural beauty to be played against this lurking danger. Because for all of season five, and I'll be honest, I had to rewatch season five because obviously while season six was on, I wasn't watching a lot of Outlander and I just pushed the pause button on these podcasts. So I'm like, I gotta rewatch season five. I gotta re-listen to my podcast. I gotta get back in the groove. So I was re-watching season five and the one thing that you notice really played out through the whole season is this intangible danger that kind of just lurks under the surface of the 18th century as a whole. And the 20th century is constantly referenced as this wonderful, safe place with all of this technology, and it's a desirable location. So whenever you get these moments, like the scene with the whales, or the scenes with the passenger pigeons at the end of Free Will, you're seeing these glimpses of the untamed natural world in all its beauty before mankind can kind of do its damage, so to speak. And it's alluring, right? You're looking at this glorified version of the world and how it was intended to be before all the destruction that occurs through hunting things. You've got that on the surface, but then you've got this deadly danger underneath. It's like a carnivorous flower, like don't get too close. Don't be fooled by its appearance because it's going to get you type thing. So I love that this is kind of one of the first scenes that we get in this episode. It is really setting the stage for the types of things that are going to come out to play later in this episode. 
Another thing that's mentioned in this beach scene is Brianna's love of Moby Dick. It's brought up by seeing the whales out in the distance and how she said it's easy to see how Melville could want to write about them because they're so majestic and beautiful. She proceeds to talk about how she loved reading Moby Dick as a child. It's one of her favorite all-time stories. And the link she has to Moby Dick also extends to these fond memories she had of her and her parents going to Cape Cod and vacationing and racing with Claire on the beach. Some of her happiest childhood memories are entangled with this idea of Moby Dick. So when we go later on into the episode and we see Brianna kind of in a really, really dark and dangerous place, she goes to Moby Dick and she tells Stephen Bonnet the story of Moby Dick and kind of retreats into this safe place for her. It's not the first time that we've seen this kind of behavior in an Outlander character, and it's not going to be the last time that we see it, that these characters kind of cling to their safe spaces in their head and they use it as a coping mechanism. And so I thought that that was very interesting. So I think that the the primary thing to discuss in this episode is Stephen Bonnet. One of the primary goals of this episode was to make Stephen Bonnet a more complex mystery of a character because he's really been the villain, black and white. He is a terrible person. And that doesn't change because of this episode, right? It doesn't nullify all of the bad things that he's done. It just adds dimension to an already terrible character. It's like what the episode Garrison Commander did to Blackjack Randall in season one. It doesn't change the fact that he's an absolute monster. It just gives him depth, I guess. Whenever we really start to pick apart this episode, one of the key themes that runs throughout it, it's a through line, is what motivates people. And Brianna says, generally, it's one of three things, love, money, or revenge. Now, I do think that that's simplified quite a bit. I think that there are other motivating factors in this episode. But when you try to categorize, most of these characters have at least one of those motivating factors, if not multiple. So Stephen Bonnet, what motivates him? She says to him, well, it's not love because you don't hurt somebody that you love. Um, And it's not revenge because what on earth did I ever do to you? So it's got to be money, right? And he, he goes on to tell her that when she visited him in the jail and told him that he was the father of her child, that really affected him in a very strong way. And it gave him motivation to do better, to be better, to put his best foot forward. That is extremely interesting. And it also fills in a bunch of the blank space that we've had, like all the question marks that have been posed to us throughout this season, all the the tiny little glimpses that we have had of Stephen Bonnet throughout season five. We're like, what the hell? What is going on with this guy? So, you know, he... He says, well, you know, I thought about killing that guy. Normally I would, but uh, I'm a father now, so I have to set a good example. So I just, you know, took a knife to his eyes. It's fine. That kind of stuff. It's just super interesting because we're, we're seeing Stephen Bonnet trying to reinvent himself. He's no longer just a simple smuggler. He's trying to create a reputation for himself, become a gentleman, acquire wealth. And what is the motivating factor behind all of that? It's a great question. And I still don't think we fully know at the end of this episode because he's banding about all of these terms and all of these things that he's heard of. Like, well, I've heard the term learn to love. And I I think I could learn to love you. Don't you think you could learn to love me? He's a very naive character in a lot of ways. And I think what it boils down to is what he explains to Bree that He didn't have a family growing up. It was just him looking out for himself. He was an orphan. He's basically been betrayed by everyone that he's ever come to even let himself have emotion towards. So naturally, he's kind of like closed that portion of himself off. That doesn't excuse the evil deeds that he does and like his reasons for doing that. 
But I think it goes a long way to explain why he's taken the actions that he has in this particular episode and in this season as far as wanting to be involved in his son's life, wanting to do better for himself. However, I think that it would be oversimplifying things to say that that is his only motivation because, let's face it, it's not his only motivation. He wants River Run. He wants that money. And he can say that he's doing it for his son, but we all know that that's really not true. And I think that this episode does a good job of, like I said, adding dimension to his character, but at the same time, it's really hard to sit there as a viewer and listen to the other side of the story when you know all of these terrible things that he has subjected all of our lovely main characters to. It's really just, ugh, it just hurts sitting there listening to it. The miraculous thing, honestly, about this entire episode is that Ed Spilliers finds a way to be compelling and to tell Stephen Bonnet's story to us in a way that hooks us and makes us sit on the edge of our seats, watches this evil man cry about this nightmare, this recurring nightmare that he has, and this deadly fear of drowning and nobody coming to save him. You almost feel bad for him. And that is just, that makes me question what is wrong with me. <laughs> When I say that I felt bad for Stephen Bonnet, I'm just like, oh my God, what is your problem, woman? Like, he's he's terrible. How could you feel bad for him? But I think that just goes to show that there are two sides to every story. It shows that people can be empathetic and have mercy without forgiving and forgetting. And I think that's what we learn from Brianna in this week's episode, is that you can have mercy for someone. But that doesn't mean that you have to forgive them. A major theme in this week's episode is kind of an underlying, I don't know if it's necessarily what you would call a theme, but it's definitely a parallel that's being drawn, is Beauty and the Beast. And I, I wrote in my notes, well, it's definitely a much more twisted version of Beauty and the Beast, especially when they're sitting at that meal and they're all dressed up and... Stephen Bonnet's eating with his elbows on the table and kind of just shoveling food in and asking her, well, is this not how refined people would do it? And why don't you show me? Things like that. Really relying on Brianna to show him the ropes, I guess. And so I really saw that story parallel in Mercy Shall Follow Me. I just thought it was so interesting that at the end of the day, I think Stephen Bonnet's first inclination is to try to get Brianna on board because he knows, even if we're looking at this completely as a calculated maneuver and taking emotion out of it, he knows that if he has Brianna on his side, it makes things 10 times easier. Obviously, us as a completely emotionally mature individual watching as an audience, we know that's never in a million years going to happen. Brianna is never going to be okay with leaving Roger, taking her son, and going and living with Stephen Bonnet and, quote-unquote, learning to love him. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's naivete, if that's emotional immaturity, if it's wishful thinking. I'm not really sure what to call it on Bonnet's part, but I 100% think he means it. That's the disturbing part of it all, is that... I 100% think that he has no clue why Brianna has something to hold against him. He doesn't think that he did anything wrong. I got to thinking about it and I was like, well, A, he's probably never slept with a woman that he hasn't either raped or paid for. So he did in a way, pay her for her services by giving her her mother's ring. So I think in his head, he justified that and moved on. Like, he doesn't view it as rape. I think that's just kind of how screwed up he is as a character, that he doesn't think he did anything wrong and he's moved on. He, he doesn't even, like, classify it in his head as something that anybody could potentially hold against him. It's just, like, disturbing on so many levels. I could spend hours talking about it, honestly. 
And then the scene at dinner when he's talking about their son, Jeremiah, and Brianna's like, you know his name. She's wondering how on earth he learned Jemmy's name. I think she's seriously miscalculated how well-connected Bonna is. We know as viewers that he certainly has connections higher up in the businessmen and landowners of North Carolina. He knows things, but what people are unaware of, especially the Frasers, is that Bonnet is in with Forbes. That's how he's getting all of his information. On the flip side of things, Bonnet also doesn't know how well connected the Frasers are. And I'm just like, really? In this whole grand scheme of things, we've got Neil Forbes versus John Gray, which again, just calls back to season four where it all began with John helping Brianna to escape Forbes. It was really great. So I just thought that that was ironic that once again, we've got these two really pulling the strings, being the snake in the grass, whatever you want to call it. But I just felt it was interesting that in season four, these two actually met and butted heads. And now we've got them inadvertently butting heads by helping Stephen Bonnet and Jamie Fraser. So I thought that was cool. Anyway, so they're both miscalculating. And when Brie finds out that she miscalculated by like 180 degrees, a switch flips in her brain and she goes into full-on mama bear mode. She kind of stops being so afraid. I mean, she's still afraid, but she's like functional afraid. And she starts to calculate and she's like, okay, how can I protect my son? He's the one that is in need of protection. And she's just like, okay, we're going to play along with this little charade that Bonnet has created and see where it leads us. I think that that's a key moment for her because we saw that side of her come out also in season four in uh, If Not For Hope when she proposes to Lord John and he's like, uh, what? (laughs) Oh, dear God in heaven. And she tells him, she says, I'll do what I must for the sake of my child. I'll do what I must. That's one thing that I think all mothers have that inclination, but it's one thing that I absolutely love about Brie is she she makes no qualms about it. Like she is a mother first and foremost, and she will do what she has to do to protect her children at all costs. We see that over and over again throughout this series, and it's really a beautiful thing about her character. And it's one of the best things that like I, I love reading that kind of thing from her. So Brie plays along and she she gets pretty far. She reads to Stephen Bonnet all night long and then wakes up the next morning, has tea. She thinks she's winning at this game. And then all of a sudden, he snaps and he realizes that she's not being sincere. She is, in fact, playing a game with him. And he does not appreciate that at all. He's an alpha male type personality with a completely volatile mental state. And when he feels like somebody's gunning for him, it's over. At the very beginning of this episode, we got a scene between Neil Forbes and Stephen Bonnet. It's brought up in the conversation that if Stephen Bonnet has a hope in hell of winning over a magistrate and getting custody of his son, he needs to be more careful about his business practices. Forbes mentions that it's rumored that he's been trading women. He's moved on from whiskey and tobacco, and he's now involved in the human trafficking operation. And we're like, ew, what? You know, and then it's not brought up again until Stephen Bonnet sells Brianna to this gross captain. But it just goes to show that he has no sympathy towards people that betray him. It's like Epi says to Brianna, he's a fair man. As long as your paths run together, like as long as you have the same goal, everything will be okay. The minute that changes, you'll be drinking tea one minute and then breathing blood the next if you're breathing at all. And that is very, very accurate description for what we see in this episode. And we know that he's like that. But again, for some reason, it's just shocking every time we see it. Overall, I did like how the show handled the Stephen Bonnet storyline. He's one of those characters that pops in and pops out of 
three different books, <laughs> Drums of Autumn, The Fiery Cross, and A Breath of Snow and Ashes. He's just there, and then he's gone. And then you get mention of him again, and then he's gone. And then he pops up for a couple chapters, and then he's gone again. It's kind of frustrating as a reader. For me personally, it was frustrating because I get what she's doing. She wants to create this elusive character that you never really know when he's going to show up and what havoc he's going to wreak on our main characters and how his actions are going to impact future things and the plot in general. So I get that he's kind of that person for for Diana and it's okay, but also I did not mind the show streamlining this story like they did because we take all three books worth of story for him and we condense it into essentially two seasons. I really liked that they showed that elusiveness and that like pop in, pop out type thing throughout all the episodes up until this point. We get mention of him from Lord John and then we see a scene of him here and we see a scene with him there. And then all of a sudden he comes into full focus in this episode and it is just, it's on. And then it comes to a close. It makes more sense as a solid arc this way, I think. And while I'm sure that book readers were disappointed on a certain level because we didn't get the full story into season six, I understand why they did it. It was actually one of the adaptation choices that I really liked. The scene with Epi, I'm not really sure how to feel about that, honestly. It's one of those that I tend to think is a bit excessive. I don't really like seeing that kind of thing. For me, if sex is going to be included in a movie or a television show or a book, it needs to have purpose. It needs to have emotion behind it or to drive the plot forward, I guess. And for me, the sex scene with Epi didn't really have that in spades. I can connect the dots and I can see why they kept it in there. First off, I can't imagine being Brie in that circumstance and watching your rapist have rough sex with another woman. It must have been sensory overload, honestly. The noises and the smells and the onslaught of memories, it must have been terrible. And Sophie, I think, did a great job conveying that trauma in her facial expressions and in her body language. So that's the first one that I'm like, okay, I can kind of see that. And then also I get that it does, to a certain extent, drive the plot forward. We already know that Stephen Bonnet's a regular for Epi, so I did kind of feel like seeing the sex was a bit excessive, but also I guess it was the whole reason for Stephen Bonnet leaving the room so that Brianna can have a conversation with Epi about please help me, please tell my parents that I'm here, please go get my husband, you know, we'll pay you. So I do get it. I just felt like all in all, probably didn't need to be in there, I guess. I do love that Epi ends up getting some relief, like everybody wins except for Stephen Bonnet type thing in this episode. I think she's iffy about Brie just because she doesn't want to double cross Stephen Bonnet. And then when Claire comes in, not even knowing who she is and the information that she has and is willing to help her, I think that just goes to show that like Brianna comes from a good family and she wants to help if she can and that these people were willing to help her out of the kindness of their hearts without any repayment of any sort. It really is just, it's good. Like I liked seeing that that come full circle. The final scene on the beach with the Frasers after Stephen Bonnet is captured is gold, in my opinion. Not only because we get the satisfaction of seeing the Frasers stand over Stephen Bonnet and triumph on the day, that in and of itself is great. I love seeing them come out on top, even if it's just like for a, a wee moment, because then it all goes south again in the next couple of episodes. It was still good to see but what was really great about that scene for me personally was all the references to previous episodes because we get this fantastic quote from Jamie. He throws the flask at Stephen Bonnet and says, have a drop for your soul. And then kneels in front of him and says, whatever happens, I can promise you the last face you see will not be that of a friend. 
it's just referencing America the Beautiful when all this mess started because Jamie was visiting Hayes and that's where we first met Stephen Bonnet. It really was fantastic for me as a show watcher and a fan to get that satisfaction of that viewership memory, that almost like reference library that this show has at this point where they can just go in and be like, mm, I think I want to reference season two today. It's really, I don't know. It just gives me some sort of satisfaction, I guess, to be like, hey, I know that line. Where's that from? Oh, yeah, that's from season four. I guess that's one of the best parts about having a long running television show is that eventually you do get to the point where you're referencing your own story. You're not having to make things up anymore. And I think that's really cool. So you've got Stephen Bonnet, but the other half of the dynamically gross duo is Neil Forbes. Another character that kind of came into the show in season four, he was very, very pissy that he did not get to marry Brianna. And you kind of see that he's just been stewing on this for a long time, and he feels like he was done dirty. So when you look at his motivation, it's pretty clear black and white. Revenge is his motivation, but also money. I think that those are pretty closely intertwined with Neil Forbes. Uh, He's just basically, he, in his mind, is getting what he's entitled to, what he should have had from the very beginning. And so when you get this scene between Forbes and Jocasta, it's a very interesting dynamic because on the outside, he's putting on like a polite professional front. But as soon as everybody leaves that has sight, he kind of just sinks into his true demeanor. And he's slouching in the couch, throwing his arm over the back, checking out all the paintings and the furniture in the room, scoping out what he wants as his cut of Stephen Bonnet's booty, basically. And then as soon as Jocasta says, oh, well, the reason I brought you here is because I've decided that I want to give my family some of my money and wealth because, you know, can't take it with me. That's when he loses his shit. Like slowly but surely, you just see the degradation of his calm, cool, and collected demeanor. She's given away 100 pounds here, 50 pounds there. And then all of a sudden, she gives Roger and Brie 1,000 pounds. And he's like, you're not going to give away my money. And she's like, excuse me, your money. And it all just goes south in a hurry. I can't believe he tried to kill Jocasta, though. That was interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that still sends me reeling a little bit. I think that's different than it is in the books. I don't quite remember it happening like that. It's been a while since I've read the sixth book or the fifth book, but I don't I don't remember that happening. Anyway, so Ulysses comes in and saves the day, but I can say that I'm 100% totally relieved and glad that we've got two of the villains out of the way after this episode. Let's get to my favorite part of this episode, shall we? <laughs> Jamie and Roger. Jamie and Roger. <laughs> Oh my God. I love Jamie and Roger together. They're such a dynamic duo and we've waited so damn long, guys. So long to have Jamie like Roger. I think the last episode, Monsters and Heroes, was a real mending of fences, building of bridges, whatever you want to call it. They see eye to eye with each other after the last episode because of the lengths that Roger was willing to go to for Jamie. And I think Jamie really saw a different side of Roger in the last episode. So this episode picks up several months later. They've really been working with each other. I think that one of the beautiful things about season five, it really seems to be a very well-structured season. Better structured than some seasons, I will say. Like, it has a very defined arc for most of the main characters. There are very few characters that are just floating around out there and don't really seem to have a purpose in season five, which I find phenomenal. So in 501, and this may be more clear to me now because I've literally watched all of season five in the last week. So I may be picking up on some of those through lines that others might not obviously pick up on. But when we start out in the Fiery Cross 501, Jamie is very much holding on to the grudge that he has against Roger for taking so long to come back to Brianna and not being sure from the very start that he wanted to 
accept Jimmy as his son. Jamie holds a lot against Roger for those actions. And it takes most of the season to get past that. There are a lot of things about Roger that Jamie doesn't like. I think primarily it's just the fact that he's the man that's pursuing Jamie's daughter. But that's just me. (laughs) Um, That's probably just me. I know that there's a lot more to it. But in 501, Jamie and Claire have the discussion before the wedding where they're talking about how unprepared Roger is for life in the 18th century. And Claire says, lucky for him, he has you to teach him. I really just felt like the light clicked on for me watching this episode because in season five, that's what we've been seeing. We viewed it much like Jamie is being bitter or being mean or not. He just doesn't like Roger. But in reality, he's teaching Roger very vital lessons that he's going to need to know for life in the 18th century. In a lot of respects, Jamie is probably the best teacher for Roger, whether it's military strategy or how to deal with other men or how to fight or how to provide for his family. These are all things that Jamie is teaching Roger. And so while it's not as obvious in a lot of other episodes like The Company We Keep or The Ballad of Roger Mack, I think it's very obvious in this episode. And one of the things that I'm I'm so sad that it got cut, but it's in the deleted scenes and it's probably on YouTube if you want to go check it out and you haven't seen it yet. There was a scene that was filmed between Jamie and Roger where they have this mock sword fight when Roger's testing out this sword that Jamie's going to buy him. And it really goes to show like how much Roger has improved in that particular skill. In the Fiery Cross, when they were doing the oath taking, we saw this talent emerge for Roger, I guess you could call it, or habit, one or the other, where he can watch something happen and then mimic it very quickly. Like it's almost an instantaneous recall type thing. And this is something that was brought up in the season premiere. And then we see it come back around in this episode a little bit, because if you watch closely, you see Roger mimicking Jamie's behaviors. One particular instance where this is the most obvious is in the shed after the fight sequence, Jamie kneels in front of this sailor. His name's Duff. I don't think it's ever like mentioned in the show, but in the script, his name's Duff. Jamie kneels in front of him and takes out a knife and says, answer the question and like threatens him really menacingly. And then later on in the episode... Later on in the episode, when they corner Philip Wiley and he's not wanting to be 100% truthful with them, Jamie pulls his knife out of his pocket and Roger takes it and completely like mimics Jamie's sinister. But it's just funny because it's like Jamie gave Roger the tamed down version to practice on. It reminded me so much, and you guys are probably going to laugh at me, but it reminded me so much of in the Lost World, like the second Jurassic Park movie, at the very end where the T-Rex bites the guy and like drags him back and then lets the baby pounce on him. (laughs) That's what this reminded me of. And I just lost it. But it's also so cute, right? Because it's like Roger's learning. He's learning how to be a man in this century. Like, Be a man of blood when he needs to be so that by the time we get to the end of this episode, we really just see such improvement in Roger. It's like a full arc. I felt like the scene actually in the shed before the fight was phenomenal between Jamie and Roger because Roger steps up and he says, when Bonnet shows up, I want to be the one to kill him. I think Roger thought Jamie was going to object. So he just pushes forward and says, look, I get that she's your daughter, but she's my wife and I'm trying to protect my wife and my son. And, you know, this is my right. And Jamie just looks at him and says, "Okay, whenever you get the chance, don't hesitate. And then the best part of it all is when Jamie says, and if you fall, Roger Mack, I will avenge you. And Roger turns to him and says, And if you should fall, I'll avenge you. A bargain, is it? And Jamie says, a rare bargain indeed. Which I just, 
it's very fitting given that whole conversation because they've just got done discussing the fact that Bonnet's men are not loyal enough to him to avenge his death. Roger puts it as they sail with him like they eat scorpion fish, only when they're hungry and have no other options. So there's no true loyalty there. It's really about survival. So then to hear Roger and Jamie discussing that they'll avenge the other if they should fall really shows that bond and loyalty that we've been looking for in these two. We get the scene, the actual fight scene, and yet again, it's one of those moments where Jamie's really taken Roger under his wing and he's just proudly watching Roger pummel this guy with a barrel before Jamie whacks him in the back of the head with a oar. And Roger's like, what the hell took you so long? And Jamie is like, well, you were doing such a great job. I didn't think you needed any help. <laughs> Jamie's just like patting himself on the back a little bit, which I find amusing. But to see that this is kind of like Jamie stops Ian from interfering in that moment. Jamie's really starting to have some confidence in Roger's ability to defend himself and to defend Brianna. And I think this is kind of like the final hurdle for Roger to jump over so that when we get to the end of this episode, when Roger goes full tilt towards Stephen Bonnet, Jamie just stands there as like, that's my boy. You know, he gives him that proud look. Jamie loves seeing Roger take his place as the man of the family in that respect. I think that's the moment that Roger really becomes Jamie's right-hand man and takes on that persona that he was meant to have much earlier in the series. I love that Jamie held up their end of the bargain and was like, okay, yeah, you go get him and kick the shit out of him for me, please. It was fantastic. I really just, from start to finish, loved Jamie and Roger in this episode, period. This episode ends on a very interesting note because after Stephen Bonnet is taken to Wilmington and tried and convicted and sentenced to drown, Brianna shoots and kills him. And like I said, one of the key questions or one of the key themes for this episode was what motivates people? And I think that she's the biggest question mark of them all in this episode because she could potentially have a lot of reasons for shooting him. And Roger asks her, it's the final line of the episode, was that mercy or to make sure he's dead? And I think it was probably a little bit of both because he's escaped death so much before. It's like Jamie says in 501, that bastard has an ungodly way of escaping death. Maybe hell's too good for Stephen Bonnet. The devil will only let him in. So he does. He has a way of escaping death. And I thought that it was ironic that Claire mentions that Jamie is like a cat with nine lives, maybe more. And that Stephen Bonnet is like the flip side of the coin. Like he is also a cat with nine lives, but he's a completely terrible person and Jamie's a really good person. So I thought that that was interesting, but also I wouldn't blame Brie at all for completely just killing him just to make sure he's dead. Like I, I would not blame her at all for that. But I think that the answer to this question that everybody's been asking is kind of right in front of everybody. Because, you know, Roger asks, was it mercy or was it to make sure that he's dead? And the title of this episode is Mercy Shall Follow Me. So I think she did it for mercy. That's my personal opinion. And I think that the title of this episode was the show's way of giving us that answer. One last thing that I wanted to talk about before I wrap up this week's episode. Whenever Brianna is telling Stephen Bonnet the story of Moby Dick, first off, in that conversation, Bonnet is kind of playing Brianna and he's like, well, what do you do for Jemmy when he's scared? And do you read stories to Jemmy? Does he like it? He's asking all of these things and he's intentionally picking Brianna's brain and it's constantly one of those things where you're never really sure if he's asking because he actually is like curious and wants to know more about his son or if he's asking so that when he gets Brianna out of the way he knows somewhat how to cope with taking this young child away from his mother. So it's kind of like a disturbing double entendre there but 
One thing that I really actually loved about that whole scene where they're talking about Moby Dick and the story and he's like, oh, hurry up and just tell me how it ends because I know you're getting tired and I really want to know how the story ends. And Brianna leans forward and says, the captain is pulled under the sea and Moby Dick wins, basically. And Stephen Bonish is horrified and he's like, you mean the monster wins? And she says, well, it depends on who you see as the monster. The sea captain bent on revenge or the whale being hunted. And I really just felt like that was such an allegory for the story that we are witnessing in this episode because you're never really sure who the bad guy is. It's the whole theme of the episode is there are two sides to every story and you don't know mine. And so we learn the other side of the story. We learn Stephen Bonnet's deepest fears, his motivations for wanting to be a better person, wanting to learn to love for the sake of having a family and having a child. The empathetic viewer really starts to feel for him. And that's what I was saying in the beginning of this episode. I really started to kind of hate myself a little bit because I'm like, Chelsea, what are you doing? He's a terrible person. Why do you feel bad for him? And I feel like that's the same boat that Brianna's in. Like you can see her soften just a little bit every time he tells her something or he expresses any sort of emotion because she's an empathetic person. She's a mother and she doesn't like to see people in pain. But you also are never entirely sure whether Stephen Bonnet is using that against her as well. One thing that I absolutely loved about this episode was the humor. There were some really funny parts. One part that I'm thinking of in particular is when Brie and Bonnet are sitting at the dinner table and he says, what I need is something I can't buy. And Brianna says, a moral compass. (laughs) I'm just like, oh my God, that was super witty. Like that's not a side of Brie that we normally see a lot. So It just really caught me off guard when she said something like that, and I just had to laugh. Another moment that I laughed at was when Ian and Jamie and Roger have Philip Wiley cornered in the alley, and they're like, where's Stephen Bonnet? Did you give us away? Like, he didn't show up, blah, blah, blah. And Wiley's just being like a total wuss coward that he is. And he's like, I didn't tell him, I swear. Like, he's made my life a living hell. Why would I help him? Blah, blah, blah. And, uh... Then Roger pulls out the knife and he says, he frequents Mrs. Sylvie's brothel. Like, I'm sure that somebody there can tell you where he is. And Jamie's like, and make yourself scarce, Mr. Wiley. And he goes, without a shadow of a doubt, (laughs) and runs away. Oh, my God. That guy that plays him. I'm not sure what the actor's name is, but he's phenomenal at playing such a cowardly character. Like, it's really great. Um, Just put a little pressure on your weak spots and you can get... Oh, you can go a long ways. Alrighty, guys. Well, that about wraps up what I have to say on 510 Mercy Shall Follow Me. Before I close the book on this week's episode, I want to talk about my quote of the episode, which was a Brianna quote when she says, I love reading, putting yourself in other people's shoes, living with characters, learning what drives them. Usually it's love, money, revenge. I love that because it really succinctly puts a finger on what people love about reading or television. It transports you into a story and it helps you to learn so much about the human condition. It lets you walk in other people's shoes just for a little bit. And I truly believe that people that read have more of a grasp on the nature of being human and the different emotions that you can experience. And it lets you live situations and experiences without actually experiencing it yourself. And I I feel like that is so wonderful, especially when we're just coming out of a global pandemic where there wasn't a lot of human interaction. I think that it really helps you to put the pulse on being, living, And it's really great. So I love that quote. Performance of the episode for me goes to Sophie Skelton because, come on, how could it not? She really blew my doors off this episode. Her and Ed Spillier's both, but really, Sophie, I'll be honest, I'm very critical of her. I don't often give her props because, as bad as this sounds, I feel like she isn't quite on the same level as a lot of other actors in this series. But this episode, it really showed what she can do when she puts her mind to it. I felt like she was fantastic. So 
Performance of the episode goes to Sophie Skelton, an honorable mention to Ed Spilliers because not only was he fantastic as always, but it was also his finale. It was his final episode on the show. So I always like to give people a shout out whenever it's their final episode. Alrighty, so that wraps up my thoughts. But as always, I put it out to you guys to see what you thought on this episode. And without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Tammy Jankowski says she may have been showing him a small measure of mercy, but she also knew he was broken to a degree. He would never change and never give her peace. I suspect it was also ending it for her so that she could truly begin to fully heal and move forward. I think it was complicated, even for Brie. Yeah, I would 100% agree, Tammy. I don't think that anyone can make that decision lightly, especially if you're an empathetic person by nature. Making the decision to take someone's life is complicated inherently. And if it's not complicated, then you've got bigger problems. But I do think that for the most part, it was it was mercy. She didn't want to see someone die via their deepest, darkest fear. That's awful. And so even if they have done completely terrible things to you, you still don't want to see them suffer. I feel like that's just being human. Joan Cohen says, welcome back, Chelsea. We missed your podcast. Well, thank you. I missed you guys too. She goes on to say, this episode is not one of my favorites, but I like the ambiguity of the ending. It reflects Brianna's complicated emotions towards Bonnet. Obviously, it's a relief that he's truly dead, but by showing him mercy, she finds forgiveness, not only toward Bonnet, but toward herself. She can reclaim her soul and begin to heal just as Jamie wanted her to. Ed Spilliers was an excellent villain, so full of sly charm that it made his villainy worse. Brianna's line about a moral compass was one of my favorites. Oh my God, it was so hilarious. So like the comedic timing of it was absolutely fantastic. Joan says, I thought it was a good choice to wrap up Bonnet's arc at this point. I also liked the continuing development of Roger and Jamie's relationship. Jamie respects Roger's desire to be the one to kill Bonnet, even if he is a bit dubious about his skills. Yeah, I think that that's the fantastic part about where we are in Jamie and Roger's relationship is that it's grown to the point where they really do trust each other and they respect each other. And Jamie may not be 100% confident in Roger's abilities, but he is 100% confident in Roger's desire to do the right thing. And Jamie knows that in the end, it is Roger's right to take revenge on this guy. Even if Brianna is Jamie's daughter, Trump card is Brianna is Roger's wife. And so he kind of gets dibs if he he wants to be the one to kill Stephen Bonnet, then, you know, he gets to be the one to kill Stephen Bonnet. And I'm glad that Jamie respects his wishes in that regard. Let's see. Crystal Smith Chapman says, as to the Stephen Bonnet storyline, anything from the books is top notch in my opinion. So yes, I loved it. I thought that Brie was indeed merciful to someone who definitely did not deserve mercy. I will also say that when I was watching season five, when it originally aired, I realized that they were wrapping up Fiery Cross a little early and saving time for the beginning of events in A Breath of Snow and Ashes. I started feeling very dreadful, sometimes being a book fan and knowing the future is not always a gift. Yeah, I kind of called that they were going to wrap the Fiery Cross early just because really the big thing to happen in the Fiery Cross is Alamance and the hanging of Roger and the things that kind of happen as a result of that. There are big things that happen as far as the Wiley's Landing stuff, stuff that happens with Bonnet, but I'm glad that they decided to kind of combine A Breath of Snow and Ashes and the Fiery Cross here to make it just one big event surrounding Stephen Bonnet, and then it comes to a close. So I, I like that. Final comment of the night is from Lara Hillman Turner. She says, Ed Spilliers puts in another top-notch performance in his final act as Stephen Bonnet. Wow, you should be a review critic. That was very well written. She continues to say, he is such an amazing actor and his work here is so good. You can see the shift in emotion and thought on his face. I think Brianna's actions are from mercy. However, also from a need for finality. She needed to make sure her son was safe from the wickedness of Stephen Bonnet and the ridiculous laws of the time. I agree. And like I said, you can literally see it click, like the light bulb come on in her when she learns that Stephen Bonnet knows Jemmy's name. Every ounce of self-defense that she has goes out the window. It all hones in on her protecting her child. 
Lara continues to say, I would have liked to have seen a couple of things from the book that they decided not to put in here. Jamie training Roger to use a sword and Jamie's kidnapping slash picnicking with Forbes' mother to make Forbes reveal where Brianna was. Yeah, it was all good, but also I agree with their choice to make the brothel. Like, they included that as well from, I believe... A Breath of Snow and Ashes bonnet storyline. So I kind of like how they still kind of included Forbes and wrapped up his storyline, but also we were able to get the great stuff with Epi as well. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up 510 Mercy Shall Follow Me. Normally, with the end of these episodes, if you are new, I know I have a lot of new people out there listening. So hello, welcome if you're new to the Sassanac Files. We are super glad to have you. In the end of the episode, I generally talk about anything new going on in the Outlander universe, whether that's cast projects or awards season or actual show news, book news, whatever you have. Season six just wrapped up, so not a lot going on. However, season six was a fantastic season. Season seven, we're already getting some breadcrumbs. And I was talking to a friend and I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited that when I go to record my next episode, I actually have season seven details to share. And if you guys aren't on social media a lot or you're not like following Outlander fan pages and having your feed inundated with all sorts of stuff, leave it to me to give you the inside scoop because I will give it to you on a weekly basis. In an Instagram live that Sam and Kat did earlier this week, they said that they have just wrapped the first block of filming on season seven, which means that two episodes are already in the can. I don't know for sure that they're the first two episodes, but because sometimes they film out of order, but two of the 16 are donezo. So I thought that was very exciting. And as if that wasn't exciting enough, guys, a couple of days ago, I woke up to news that they have cast William Ransom, ninth Earl of Ellesmere, the adult version of him. We've had two child versions of him, and now he's all grown up and entering the Outlander universe as a main character in this next season. So I'm really excited for you guys to quote unquote meet him as an adult. He's going to be played by Charles Vandervart, a Canadian actor. He's been in quite a few things, and I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's a great casting choice. He looks so much like his parents on the show. So I think it was a good choice. I'm going to have to check out some of the stuff that he's been in to kind of get an idea of his acting chops. But I'm sure like the casting director for Outlander normally does a fantastic job with these things. So I'm sure that he is fantastic. Diana seems to think so. She said that she's already seen dailies of scenes that he's done and is very happy with them. She thinks he was a fantastic choice. And we're rolling, guys. We're rolling on season seven. Hopefully Droughtlander isn't too long. Fingers crossed. I'm thinking it's going to be anywhere from nine months to a year. I don't think it'll be much more than a year. The powers that be are very focused on getting the season out as quickly as possible, minimizing Droughtlander because they know we waited so long for the last season. So with that, I'm going to sign off of here for the day. I will talk to you next week when we're discussing 511 Journey Cake. It's one of my favorite episodes of season five, and that's saying a lot because I loved season five. The uh, penultimate episode and the finale of season five are fire. I'm so excited to talk about them. It's one of those that they're like really deep, nitty gritty, and there's a lot to discuss. So I'm looking forward to talking to you guys about it. Also, after all of that's done, after I've discussed 511 and 512, I'm getting together with Angela Hickey from Outlander Cast Blog. She also has a Patreon page called Queen Bee's Hive, does all sorts of things Outlander related there. So if you're looking for new Outlander stuff, head on over her way on Patreon. She's going to be joining me here on May 28th, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. That's a Saturday. We're going to go live on my Facebook group, TSF Obsassinax. Make sure to head on over and join that group if you have not yet. That's where you can access all of our live recordings. So yeah, we're going to be there to chat season five superlatives, everything we loved and hated about season five, even though there's not much that I hated about season five. So yeah, hope you can join us then May 28th at 4 p.m. Eastern. That is my cue and I'm going to head out. So have a fantastic week, everybody. You guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye.